essay, December 2022. I've been asked to share my experience, strength, and hope as it touches upon the role my father, Roy K., played in both my addiction and recovery. It's been a bumpy road for both us both, thanks to our addiction and character defects. Of course, our conflicts and issues were not the real problem. We just didn't see that at the time. We were caught in the grip of the blame game, one looking to fix the other instead of looking inward to fix ourselves. We tried to clean up each other's yard instead of cleaning up our own. It's hard enough to change myself, but impossible to change others. In fact, I found it impossible to change myself without practicing the spiritual principles found in S.A. Principles such as forgiveness and accepting others as they are. Quote, live and let live. The path to peace. I regret that my father and I could not achieve this until he was dying of cancer. This was in September 2009. It was in his last moments that the veil was parted and we saw past ourselves into each other. Our hearts were joined in complete forgiveness and reconciliation. Thank God. How very sad it would have been if he had passed without experiencing that. My addiction started long before I ever experienced lust or sex. It started with pain and trauma that would later need relief by my lust, quote, medication. This began in my preschool age. Dad was deep in his sexaholism, absent from most of the time, chasing the big fix, as he calls it in the white book. When he was home, he was emotionally unavailable. He was seldom engaged in family unless it was to rage at us when we disturbed him. These moments were horrifying. A perfect example was the time he was driving the, to the family somewhere. I was in the back seat tapping my fingers on the upholstery. He turned around while driving, his face contorted with rage and screamed, If you don't stop, I'll drive this car off the road. Never a dull moment with my dad. I couldn't think or move. It was like being electrocuted. I went numb with shock. Events like these set me retreating into self-productive ways of living, adopting survival tactics to cope with life. This is where my addiction started. I needed a happy place where I could hide. I became a daydreamer. Fantasies were my escape. Compulsive eating soothed the fear. Later, science fiction books took me to other worlds. This was constant and habitual, the seeds of addiction, 
At a prepubescent age, I discovered masturbation. I was immediately addicted. The addiction blossomed very quickly. What a relief it brought. It had a narcotic effect that lasted long after the act. It became my drug of choice. Parentheses. Notice that how often my dad refers to sex addiction as a drug in the white book. Close parentheses. It was better than food and fantasy, but of course I kept those addictions going as well. By this time, I was a sexaholic fourth grader. When I entered puberty and discovered girls, the fantasy took on a romantic, erotic turn. Rocket fuel for my dis-ease. I was too shy to talk to girls, but I sure could fantasize about them. Living in my head trapped me inside myself, unable to learn how to relate to girls. Fear paralyzed me, and I took great care to medicate that fear. I had been emotionally battered into believing that I was defective and undesirable. I even believed I was physically ugly. Decades later, I found out that none of this was true. I felt inadequate, and I was afraid I'd embarrass myself with girls and be rejected. I was terrified of rejection. The need of medic to medicate went very deep. When I was 15, I added drugs to the mix. I know now that Dad never wanted to be that way. He was not a mean person. He was not physically abusive. He was a tender-hearted man. He loved us. But for us, it was confusing to experience love and rage in the same house. His disease made him irritable and reactive. My disease did the same to me, but to a lesser degree, thanks to how he got into recovery and changed. He could not control his outbursts, no matter how much he wanted to. Once, when I was a teenager, he went into a rage and verbally leveled me for a small infraction that wasn't a big deal at all. He was devastated afterward. He went, he wept with sorrow as he tried to comfort me. Anyway, my erotic fantasies progressed to stealing girly magazines from the corner store then to pornographic movies and videos, then to marriage. Like many of us, I thought having a moral outlet for my sexuality would solve the problem. It did not. Repeated discoveries by my wife soon followed. Then there was hurt, anger, and betrayal. She thought she had married a different person, she didn't know that the real me lived and loved hiding and keeping secrets like cyber sex and flirting and trying to connect, chasing the intrigue, 
the teas, and the forbidden. Trust went out the window. I couldn't refrain from checking out other women in front of her. Wow, it hurts to remember how I hurt her in so many ways. I am so grateful I don't have to do that with my current wife and precious life partner. I tried to stop many times, but could not. I looked to my religious beliefs to try and get healing. I tried therapy and self-help books. I thought I could be fixed by someone or something external to myself, not realizing that this was magical thinking. Sure, I learned many things that helped me to this day. But knowledge and beliefs won't keep addiction in check. I didn't realize that to win, I would have to lose. I didn't realize that it would take action on my part and a willingness to completely change my way of life in order to get well. By this time, my dad had gotten sexually sober and was in recovery. There was no sex addiction program in town at that time. He joined AA in order to treat his sexaholism. He got by in AA for a number of years. It was through AA that he learned the principles of 12-step recovery that were to become the foundation of Sexaholics Anonymous. He made amends to the family, but was too inexperienced to do it smoothly. He alienated us in the process. We had our role in this too. He tried to 12-step me even though I wasn't ready. I did learn from his experience though. I didn't make these mistakes with my family when I got sober, though I made plenty of other mistakes. At the time, I didn't want what he had. I argued with him about his sobriety definition. After all, there's nothing wrong with masturbation, I said. I just needed to control it. I later learned that right and wrong have nothing to do with it. I believed my sobriety definition was based on his Christian beliefs. He was a seminary graduate, and he had been an associate pastor at a local church. He left the ministry so he could act out freely of restraint. I remember the time he, he brought a hooker home and introduced her to the family. I think he was trying to help her, but it felt very strange. I didn't know who she was until years later. But he met her when he was acting out? I don't know. I still don't know. Sexaholics can do crazy, chaotic things. After a number of years of sexual sobriety, he admitted to having a religious addiction and never rejoined a church. I went through that as well, following his example. I guess... I know how that essay sobriety definition addresses, not morally, but the reality of our diseased condition. Morality is not the issue 
when addiction is the controlling behavior. To paraphrase the white book, we have taken ourselves out of the whole context of what is right or wrong. In one of his non-program writings, I read that he considered straight and gay people as being fundamentally the same in what he called their pseudo-sexuality of lust. As my disease progressed and the consequences became more painful, I became open to Dab's efforts to reach me. I took his advice to join AA like he did. In AA, I abstained from acting out sexually for five years before I relapsed. I had still been lusting. I didn't understand that lust is the first drink. Probably I didn't want to understand. My focus was not acting out whilst holding on to lust. I was in denial like any good sexaholic. I was like the alcoholic who was determined not to drink a whole bottle, believing one shot wasn't the problem. Years later, after I began surrendering lust on a daily basis, and much to my surprise, I found that I didn't have the urge to look at porn, masturbate, or act out sexually anymore. When there's no first drink, I'm not triggered to drink. So I speak. I speak that way. During those first five years of AA, I was abstinent, not sober. I was still crazy, still reactive, and emotionally intoxicated with conflicts and fears. I couldn't feel emotional. I was full of resentment and anger, and of course I relapsed. I tried again later on and got another five years abstinence before relapsing again. By then, other sex addiction programs were coming online. I got another five years of abstinence in one of these. By the admission that lust was the first drink still eluded me. I was allowed to define my own sobriety definition, and I did not include lust. I relapsed a third time. That phase of recovery was in the mid-80s, did not bring me to an admission of powerlessness over lust or to a willingness to surrender. This didn't happen until March the 25th of 2014, when I finally joined Sexaholics Anonymous. That was five years after my dad passed away. I have not had the urge to act out since then, when I drew a red line to lust. I wish my dad had lived to see me in Sexaholics Anonymous. It would blow his mind to see me here today speaking at an essay convention in Armenia. It blows my mind. Each time I started one of those five-year stretches of abstinence, I felt like I'd hit bottom. I see now that my motivation was fear of dire consequences. I was still trying to control my disease, selective in my adaptation of the program, 
instead of embracing complete surrender to it. I decided the actions I would take or not take based on what I felt like doing or not doing. Half measures. Like, for example, getting a sponsor, but not using the sponsor. Like starting the steps, but not but stopping at step four, etc. I was trying to get away with doing as little as possible instead of making the, this program work as a way of life and doing whatever it takes to stay sober. It was a Dan-directed program rather than a higher power-directed program. Today, I have evidence that I've hit bottom. I let the program use me. If it wants me to stand on my head, and so to speak, I stand on my head. If the white book calls for a period of mutual celibacy in my marriage so that I can heal from lust, then so be it. Program actions can be hard. I'm an addict. I don't do hardships. I run from it or medicate it. Today is different. So long as I maintain a healthy spiritual condition a day at a time, I quit fighting and I am willing to go through hardship and suffering without resorting to toxic medication. Today, I call or text before acting out instead of after acting out. In meetings today, I share the solution instead of dumping the problem. I work the steps continually. I have mutual service positions in SA, as well as my food and drug addiction programs. I call my sponsor once a week or more. I am a sponsor. The list of lifestyle actions goes on and on. No more half measures. My second marriage is unbelievably wonderful. Now it's not polluted with lust. My wife knows she's safe. She trusts me. Thanks in part to our periods of celibacy, lust is out of the marriage bed. There's a quality of love, camaraderie, intimacy, and physical union that I didn't know was possible. This is from practicing the principles of recovery that my dad discovered and wrote about in the white book. I no longer resist those ideas. No more contempt prior to investigation or paralysis by analysis. Well, for the most part. None of what I describe here is perfect. It's more accurate to say I'm making progress. I no longer wait until I feel like practicing the principles. I take the action. The enthusiasm follows. Most of the time, anyway. Sometimes when a program action really feels like the opposite to what I feel like doing, I slip into self-will and resist. But it doesn't take long for me to wake up and get back in action. 
I believe that fear and self-deification have been the root of my unwillingness and resistance. In order for me to get well, I had to experience in full the pain consequences of my unwillingness. That is what got me to surrender to the principles of the program. I had to face my desperate underlying fears. One day when desperation pulled me into the depth of despair, I prayed and gave God full permission to do whatever it took to bring me to my knees and surrender. I waited then thinking that something terrible was going to happen. I thought God might break my spirit and pound me into the ground with horrible consequences so that I'd act out again like a punitive parent. Instead, I was taken to the edge of the abyss and shown my end. In horror, I saw where I was headed. I was after, it was after my third relapse. I had recently remarried and had stopped doing going to meetings or, or working any kind of program. The lust uh, became stronger and more frequent. It escalated into internet porn again. I'd started, then swear off. I just like old times. I tried to control it, to stop it, but demoralization and desperation set in. Yet I was still resisted getting back into recovery. I kept trying to control and enjoy it. But this time I knew that the other S program would not work for me. And then I thought, oh no, I might have to go to SA and admit that dad was right. Right there, I knew instinctively that I'd have to give up lust. Darn! I stalled. I couldn't take that step, but my condition got worse and worse. Finally, I realized that I was about to fall back into full-blown sexual addiction. This would devastate my wife, who married me, thinking that I was done with sex addiction. I stood to lose another marriage. I was about to be sucked back into the abyss. It was a moment of absolute clarity. It was like being hit with a bucket of ice water. I was shocked at the clarity. In this awakened state, I felt the sheer horror of this disease. I knew I'd have to go to SA, but had yet to act on the decision. The very next day, my wife approached me. She was tense, but not controlling. She asked if I had thought about going back to meetings. I was relieved. I was ready. I'd given God permission to do whatever it took, and that's how he did it. I had been willing to let God punish the hell out of me. Instead, he opened my eyes to the abyss that I was heading for. Some of us do experience horrible consequences, but I don't believe that it's the same as punishment from an angry parent. It's God's way of motivating us, born out of its intense love and desire to save us. 
It's worth every drop of blood we have to pay. The freedoms and joys of recovery are simply not available any other way. So, what does surrender in the program look like for me? It's not just taking the third step when I make a decision to turn my will and life over to God. Step three is not the, the surrender. It's only a decision to begin a lifestyle of surrender. There is always evidence of a surrender, and that evidence is action. If there's no action, I haven't surrendered. Action, like working the steps, like service, and using the tools of the program. Then there's surrendering to lust hits. When I finally became willing, no one needed to tell me to make surrender calls or text to other members. In the first two years, there were days I'd make three or five calls a day. I've known what to do for years now, so it's instinctive for me to do whatever it takes to stay sober. It's instinctive for me to pray for the person who's triggering my lust. It's instinctive for me to not act out, no matter how uncomfortable I may be. It's obvious when I need to call my sponsor, etc., etc., it's simple, but not easy. The disease always pushes back. Fighting lust is a losing battle. It's like stepping into the ring of a heavyweight boxer. He's going to knock me out every time. But now I have a, a big brother who will step in the ring for me and knock out that fiend. However, my big brother will not do it unless I go to the gym every day and work out as if I'm going to be in the, to the ring myself. I have to do my part. It's like Dad used to say, quote, without God, I can't. Without God, me, without me, God won't, end quote. My workout consists of things like quiet time before I start the day, reading program literature, doing my step work, doing service, praying, meditating, doing nightly sixth, seventh, and tenth steps, going to meetings, and doing anything else that Big Brother directs. I have found that when lust does hit, the effort to surrender does not work unless I've been doing my part. Sobriety is one thing, recovery is another. Recovery means dealing with life on life's terms. It means dealing with character defects that cause conflict, fear, guilt, resentment, and other forms of emotional intoxication. If I'm not careful, emotional intoxication will lead to lust and sex intoxication. Emotional and lust intoxication have always brought pain to me and others. My disease constantly looks 
for excuses to revive itself, always offering itself as a relief. As my defects come under my higher power's control and I slowly gain peace of mind, my disease has less to offer. However, like my dad used to say, I'm not free from lust, but I am free not to lust. My ninthly tenth step inventory is critical to, critical to my recovery and a growing peace of mind. It shows me the shortcomings that are active in me. Step six is where I become willing to have God remove them. Step seven is where I ask God to remove them. I used to think step six meant becoming willing to stop the defects. I used to think that step seven meant asking God to help me stop them. Those interpretations were through a filter of self-will. I can't control the defects on my lust. That's why I never got anywhere with them. I'm as powerless over my defects as I am over lust. Nowadays, I ask for the willing to willingness to have God remove them. Then I ask God to go ahead and take them, doing for me what I could not do for myself. The same with lust. If God doesn't do it, it won't get done. If it doesn't get done, then there's something for me to learn and grow from. I now view seemingly unanswered prayers as opportunities for growth. Like others before me, I can honestly say I am grateful to be a recovering sexaholic. Finally, I think I should mention that I've had to get outside help in order to stay on track in recovery and remain reasonably insane. Sane. Being bipolar, I've needed to undergo therapy. The pain of insanity and mental illness has been large parts of what fueled my addictions. They've kept me from gaining traction in the program. It's said that resentment is the number one killer of addicts. I've observed in myself and others that trauma is also a killer of addicts. My wife is in 12-step recovery. She is also on the staff of one of the premier trauma treatment clinics in the United States, and her training and experience supports this observation. Thank you for inviting me to be of service. Thank you for helping me remain sober. May your higher power ultimately bless you beyond expectation. May you keep coming back no matter what. I say again, keep coming back no matter what. Dan K. California, USA.